Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. Margie Patel joins us now, Wells Fargo Asset Management Senior Portfolio Manager. Margie, I'll start with a question I started this morning with, with Lisa. Your 10-year yield, 132.38. Why are we down here? Uh, well, I think we're down here because uh, the Treasury curve is really, I think, kept suppressed by what the Fed is doing. They've anchored short rates low. They've been really buying a lot of the longer duration uh, Treasury bonds long term. And so really, there's no place for the demand for Treasury securities to go except the middle part. So you see a lot of expressing of emotion in the middle part. I think it shows people are uh, worried about Inflation, yes, but they're also worried about what if the economy slows down from deceleration or from COVID. Also, it is high, as you pointed out, compared to yields in the rest of the world. The dollar stabilized. So really, a 10-year at 130 plus or minus looks like a pretty decent investment. So, Margie, based on your view that this perhaps is driven by what the Federal Reserve is doing, based on the fact that you could see foreign buying, do you count on yields remaining around here for the foreseeable future when you decide, you know what, equities still look like a buy? Yes. Uh, number one, because uh, Chairman Powell has told us so. He thinks inflation is transitory. He wants to lengthen out that period where we look at even reducing the amount of purchases they're doing with treasuries and mortgages. So I believe what he says, they have the power to do that. And I think he's uh, holding his breath when he thinks about what if we very slightly taper and uh, we see some explosion in the marketplace. So I think they don't want to see that. They're going to keep on this course. Uh, what they think about inflation coming down is more important than what the market thinks. And also their other goal of employment, they still claim that there's a lot of slack in the labor market. So that gives them a lot of pace, even if inflation isn't really doing what they'd like it to do. How important have earnings season been this year? Well, I think they've shown what people expected a very, very strong in the first quarter. And I think we may once again be surprised in the second quarter to see earnings being much stronger than maybe we might have thought. We might have looked for a little bit of margin pressure. And my feeling is we're going to see companies continue to operate with less. Their sales are going up. They maintain their, their labor force costs, either through productivity or just not hiring. So I think we may have another very pleasant surprise um, in the second quarter as we start to roll that out. Not just over the course of this earnings season, but really since last earnings season, mid-March, we've seen the Russell 2000 down about 7% from its peak. And over the same time, the NASDAQ 100 is up about 13% over that time. What do you want to do with small caps now? Well, I think that's a theme you see also in, in NASDAQ, those very, very large, uh, you might say, high-growing safety kind of stocks, the FANG named, have so far outpaced the rest of the market. Uh, a good example was the airlines, which you cited, and I think that's typical. Lots of stocks, small cap or even some larger, are really down from their peak in March by 10, 15, maybe even 20 percent. And I think that shows that mixture is people want to be in the market, but they want something safe, so they keep sticking with the FANGs, the FANGs keep going up and the rest of the market seems to be churning around, small cap, mid cap, or even large cap. Margie, just quickly, and finally, you and I have had a chat about this in the past, just how much cyclicality is left in this credit market? Does the cycle matter any more to what's going on? No, I don't think we have a cycle anymore. I think the Fed determines that we're on a, you might say, a secular path of low growth around a very, very low uh, range of yields. 
What a call. Marky, we've got to follow up on that another time. You know I'm fascinated by this call of yours. Marky Patel of Wells Fargo Asset Management, Senior Portfolio Manager. Robert Tipp, Pigeon Fixed Income Chief Investment Strategist and Head of Global Bonds. Rob, Steve Major of HSBC says we cannot afford higher rates, that this might be the cycle peak for the yield curve already. What do you say? Yeah, I think we have seen the, the peak in rates probably for the cycle. There could be another uh, twin peak later on. Um, but I think uh, that is one of the, the underpinnings of the long-term decline, secular decline in rates, aging demographics, and high debt burdens. Uh, that economies that are incredibly indebted, and there's been a secular rise uh, in debt-to-GDP ratios across uh, the developed world, and uh, the upshot of that is you simply cannot afford the higher interest rates that you had before. So we, I think it's entirely reasonable to expect we're going to get a lower peak for rates in the cycle than last time. And we've probably already seen it. Rob, is that consensus at this point? I mean, that's a pretty bold call that you and Steve Major over at HSBC are making, that we have seen the peak in 10-year Treasury yields for this economic cycle. Are people prepared for that? Yeah, well, it isn't and it is. Uh, if you ask forecasters, and forecasters have been consistently too bearish on the market, they would say, no, you know, you're going to see 2% or what have you. Um, and that, that's entirely reasonable given the economic picture that, that you're looking at. But if you look at the market, you look at the price action in the market, uh, you're seeing something uh, that you haven't seen for, for decades or even hundreds of years, which is an interest rate cycle that runs almost exclusively through the front end of the yield curve. So when you're on the gold standard, there was faith that the central bank would control inflation because the fiscal could not get out of control. The back end of the yield curve would be relatively stable as short rates would go up and down. And uh, you didn't see that in 1994. You didn't see that in 2013 when there was a fear of the Fed raising rates, the entire yield curve went up. But what we've seen this time with the dot plot and the dot plot, I think, has been a nuisance for the Fed uh, for a long time in, in a lot of ways, or at least for people trying to explain what's going on there. But seeing those scenarios where if you have high inflation, the Fed is going to get into action. The, uh, you already have a, a, a large swath uh, of the participants at that meeting that are ready to go. Uh, and what you saw in the back end was the market said, oh, you know, we have faith that in a overheating scenario, the Fed is going to contain inflation, and therefore long rates do not need to go up. And in fact, if the Fed is a balanced group, and up until this point, I think the market had been leaning towards they're going to stay on hold too long and let inflation get away. Mm. If this is a balanced group, then we're going to have lower growth than we expected six months ago in the long run, and you're going to have lower rates in the long run. Talking about lower growth, let's talk about real yields. We're sitting in the ballpark of negative 105 basis points. Will they go even more deeply negative? Well, I think the thing that people have to wrap their mind around is you're kind of in a, uh, a new permanent area for real rates. Uh, I mean, in, in, uh, in my view, the, the Fed funds rate is just about zero now. The peak of the last cycle was around two and three eighths. The peak this cycle will probably be significantly lower than that because of these secular fundamentals. And if you're going to be averaging a Fed funds rate that's maybe a half percent or one percent or less, the cash rate in real terms is going to be significantly negative the vast majority of the time. And you have to get used to seeing a negative real yield term structure. Uh, so yields are going to be in these lower range. You know, when things are really bad, maybe the 10 year rallies to a half percent. And as we're seeing, if the economy is searing hot and inflation is soaring, 
you might get a 2% tenure. Uh, and if that's the case, and inflation on average is 2% on the CPI, there's going to be a lot of negative real yields. So myths and buts there, Rob. So let's put a bow on this all. We started this conversation by asking you whether you think we've seen a cycle peak in yields. You suggested we had. I want to just really make it clear where you're positioned on credit and how it relates to that view on sure. yields and making that cycle call already. Right. Well, I think, you know, what we've typically seen is that you get an economic recovery, you have a big tightening in spreads. But as that economic recovery progresses, uh, that spreads tend to stay fairly narrow and that that's likely to be the case this time. Um, now, the one thing we haven't talked about is that taper. And I think, um, you know, uh, summers are, are, are a difficult period uh, for the market. And um, what we're kind of setting up for right now is to get to August, have interest rates pretty low and have the Fed come in and shock the market with their taper announcement. So, you know, I think, you know, this is going to be a, a transition year. Uh, that's been uh, our view all year of where rates are cresting. I think we have seen the highs, uh, but it's not going to be a, a completely smooth ride uh, as we go forward. And that'll jar credit a bit as we go through. Um, but in general, looking 12 to 24 months out, I think you're going to get some additional outperformance from credit. And the surprising thing uh, that we've been saying uh, and, and believed to be the case 12 to 24 months out is that the yield, the roll down, that duration portion of the bond market is also going to contribute. And uh, people staying at their strategic asset allocations are probably going to get the best results. Rob, a lot of people watching the show have probably thought it has become bond show today uh, because that has been where the entire focus has been. But that's where the focus has been for equities, too. And when you say that monetary policy may be executed entirely on the front end during this cycle, it makes me think that we're going to see a much flatter yield curve going forward if that is the case, which is a bad thing for banks, which has been a big call for a lot of equity investors. Is that what you're saying, that we've already seen the peak in yield curve steepening? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I mean, if, um, uh, you know, long rates on, on the 10 year are going to be peaking, you know, sub 2% bouncing around in this area, you know, typically financials, they like to see higher yields. Uh, and, um, you know, that doesn't look to be in the cards. It looks like you're going to have stability. Uh, the one thing that the credit cycle has going for it, and that would include financials, is the really good asset performance. Uh, there are concerns about asset quality uh, as at the early stages of the crisis. And I think a lot of those concerns, you know, are falling by the wayside as we go forward, and as we get information, you know, from the banks going on here. So I think the, the underlying fundamentals of an expanding economy uh, of corporations that have liquefied, that are able to roll out debt, uh, extend their maturities out, uh, you know, continues to provide a, a background where there are a lot of opportunities across the credit spectrum from you know, local and hard currency emerging markets, uh, investment grade and high yield corporate bonds, as well as structured products. Rob, good to catch up. I love the team at PGM. They always come out with a call, a proper call. Robert Tip of PGM. Rob, good to hear from you, mate. Good to see you too. Let's turn to David Page of AXA Investment Managers, the head of macroeconomics. Dave, let's start there. Just your response to the data, not just this morning, but through this week. So I think you've got a very mixed bag. I mean, the consumer, thankfully, actually coming through reasonably solidly here. Um, but we have seen a relatively weak months-on-months -months quarter across Q2 after we've seen that, obviously, that huge surge come through in March. What caught our eye over the last week has been the drop in weekly consumer confidence as well. 
We've seen the fastest retracement in consumer confidence over the last three weeks than we've seen since last December. So there's a really mixed bag here. Yes, you're seeing price pressures come through, but those we recognize to be frictions to the economy, not something that's, that's necessarily reflecting you know, strong demand, but something that's actually sort of a headwind to growth, if you like. You've had industrial production a little bit softer than expected, manufacturing dipping again for the second time in the quarter. Um, and some of the surveys, you know, Empire State survey yesterday, through the roof, series high. Others just starting to come off a little bit. And we think back to that non-manufacturing ISM, which also included um, a sharp drop in the employment number. And there are some pretty mixed messages come through here. Now, I think, you know, the backdrop is Q2 GDP number looks pretty solid. We've been looking for 8% annualized for some time. We'll fine-tune on the back of these numbers, but it looks pretty consistent in that area. But I think that it's going to be slightly more challenging for Q3, um, and that's one of the things the Fed's going to be watching when it thinks about sort of trying to send that signal as to just when it we'll needs to We'll all be watching that, tapering. Dave. As you say, it's really hard to read the data. It's really hard to read what it should mean for the bond market, too. Yields are higher by a couple of basis points, one or two through the curve here. But on the week, we've had that hot CPI, that hot PPI, that hot retail sales print, and yields are still lower on the week. A little bit earlier today, in fact, 30 minutes ago, we asked Robert Tipper-Pijim whether he thinks we've seen a cycle peak in yields. Take a listen to what Rob had to say. I think we have seen the, the peak in rates probably for the cycle. There could be another uh, twin peak later on. Um, but I think uh, that is one of the, the underpinnings of the long-term decline, secular decline in rates, aging demographics, and high debt burdens. David Page, your reaction? to that sound, that response from Robert Sipper P. Jim? Yeah, and I think that's probably a little bit pessimistic for the outlook for growth. And I think one of the key issues here is going to be what comes through in terms of, of spending. We are expecting to see a very large stimulus package come through. It's not being as easy um, as Biden perhaps thought it might have been. Um, but we are expecting to see um, in September the government actually put some significant um, spending programs in, which we think are going to lift potential growth for the U.S. going further forwards. It's not a deficit finance argument. This is something that, that, that we think is actually you know, money going where it needs to go in the US, where it's not gone for some time. And I think that's going to support the outlook. If we take a step back and think what the Fed thinks, the Fed thinks that the terminal rate for the Fed funds is 2.5%. Now, OK, we could have a, an argument around that 25 basis points either side quite comfortably. But it's unusual to see bond yields topping out at such a low level if we think that the terminal rate is going to be at north of 2%. And I think certainly as time goes by and as we get closer to that point where we are going to see the Fed tightening, and we think that happens in 2023 and not any time later, as you get closer to that, then those 10-year yields and the two yields are all going to start to reflect those rates going higher. So I think it's, it's up. To our minds, we're expecting to see yields rising. Um, we think you know back to 175 by the end of this year is likely, although I think it could be quite a long summer. But I think we'll see them climb higher than that as we move over the next year or so. So what's the deciding factor here? Is what I'm hearing from you that it's more important to look at Washington, D.C. and what plan they might pass than any of the incoming data that come in, uh, for the most part, hotter than expected or have been for the past few weeks? No, I think what we've seen from D.C. is, is going to give the economy a significant rebound across the course of this year. I and mean, we've been tailoring our, our forecast a little bit lower. We think 6.4% for 2021. But by and large, you're seeing a very strong rebound come through. You're going to see the economy move into a position of excess demand. And that's something that, that ultimately is going to govern how the Federal Reserve moves. Now, I think when we look to the longer term, um, there are questions about whether or not there's, there's scarring in the economy, um, uh, just how much readjustment the economy is going to have to take to get, to get over this pandemic. But I think that's where you start looking at those longer term spending plans. And you think, well, yes, there could be some downside, but there's possibly some upside coming through from here as well. 
So right. I think DC is important for the longer term, but I think in terms of, of what we're likely to see from the Fed and what we're likely to see from the economy over the next six months, the stimulus that's been injected into the economy already is a key feature here. But from markets, you so know, markets David. will always be forward-looking. David Page of AXA Investor Management. Dave, good to catch up, sir, on this data. Jonathan Miller has been covering this industry for decades at Miller Samuel. He's the president and chief executive officer with incredible data and insight into the trends. Do we have a housing shortage at this point in the big cities, given that we're starting to see a little bit of interest, or is there still a massive glut that needs to get filled? I actually think it's somewhere in between. Uh, so, for example, in New York, uh, we saw since January uh, when we had near record inventory, we've seen inventory fall about 25 percent. I think the way to look at urban markets around the country is that the suburbs got all the attention. That's where the outbound migration was initially. And so I would look at the cities. I'm not saying we return exactly to normal, but uh, clearly uh, elevated inventory levels are coming down and we're seeing it's clearly not as tight. The suburbs are at record lows surrounding New York and other markets that we cover. Uh, but it, we're seeing inventory really fall sharply in the cities as well because uh, demand purchase activity has skyrocketed from uh, year ago levels, which was the lockdown period. But even when we compare two years ago, same period, we're looking at, for example, in Manhattan, sales are up about 15% over uh, second quarter 2019 numbers. But Jonathan, that's because everybody wants a deal. Have we seen the bottom in prices or is these all the bottom feeders coming in to try to pick up things cheap? I, th I think the window is just about closed on that. If you look in an in, you know, at the aggregate numbers, you're really talking about a market that's uh, within three to it's about three to five cent percent below what it was in the same period two years ago, which would be the pre-COVID sort of uh, uh, benchmark. And uh, uh, but that that is really compressing. The one thing about the city uh, cities in general is that rental markets are generally hit much harder than purchase markets uh, because renters are more you know more flexible they're not they don't have to sell a property during a global pandemic and what we're also seeing at the same time is in manhattan specifically we're seeing new leasing activity for the last three months has been at all-time record levels yeah. and so what that's doing is burning off the significant inventory and actually in some segments of the rental market i'm not trying to be sort of sensational here but we're actually seeing bidding wars on rental properties uh, starting to emerge, which is highly unusual. Jonathan, you're making me so glad I re-signed my lease when I did, because when I did it back in the spring, I got a couple months off. I got my rent there monthly rate lowered. <laughs> if I were to do right. that now, or if I were to try to do that now, they'd send me out the door because someone else is willing to pay more. And I live down in the financial district. It's gotten a lot busier over the past couple of months. But are people like me where they want to live kind of close to offices, close to the places that they work? Or has COVID changed that? Are we seeing the places even within the city that people want to habitate different? Right, right, right. So that's a that's an excellent point. And we're actually seeing Wall Street firms, uh, a number of the big ones basically say, come back to work five days a week, uh, at, you know, and they're sort of uh, the, you're sort of ahead of the pack. Uh, one of the one of the things we have to sort out is um, I think we're going to have 
corporate callbacks for employees are going to really ratchet up beginning in September and throughout the fall. And that's going to breathe a lot of oxygen into street level retail. Mm -hmm. And right now, as I always say, we're at peak Zoom. We're, we're really, <laughs> you know, the, everything is everything is sort of being recalibrated. Um, one thing that really uh, I think is a misunderstanding too is that work from home. That phrase implies to many work from the sub yeah. suburbs at home, right. and that's not true. You're going to have plenty of people working remotely, you know, a couple of days a week from the Upper East Side or right. you know whatever neighborhood, uh, just because of the sheer density of workers in the city. So, Jonathan, Lisa and I are a little bit biased and we think, you know, New York maybe is the only market that matters because it's the one that matters to us. But you obviously cover a lot more throughout the country, including South Florida. And we've talked a lot here in New York about the flight to Florida. To what extent has that actually taken shape? What is demand looking like down there? So Florida, just like uh, most housing markets in the country, has a chronic lack of supply. Uh, an example, uh, months of supply for um, uh, luxury condominiums in Miami uh, two years ago was something like three to four years to sell off. Now it's about eight months. Uh, so there's been a tremendous absorption of, of all price points, but uh, even the most problematic, which had been sort of the, the high-end market. And I think a big reason for that, I, I think the uh, escape from New York uh, sort of um, narrative is a little bit overblown uh, because essentially I think Zoom or remote working has given corporate executives much more flexibility on where they have to be at any given time. And the way I describe it is the tether between work and home has become infinitely longer, so there's a lot more flexibility. What's really different this time in Florida, and we cover about 14 housing markets there, uh, is that uh, besides the low inventory, is that we're seeing an inversion of what's performing. It's skewing, instead of uh, softest at the top, it's actually inverted, mm. and we're seeing the upper half of any given market. So we're seeing some big pricing in markets that we might not have seen before. Yeah. So it's not just a couple of locales. It's it's a it's a big footprint. Jonathan Miller, thank you so much for that insight. Jonathan Miller of Miller Samuel, uh, president and chief executive officer. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. For insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations, and subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.